Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 243. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard here. Thank you, as always, for tuning into the show. This is Dose of Leadership, the show where we focus on that topic of leadership. Why? Because it is central to everything that we do. It impacts every aspect of our life our success level, how well we lead, how well we understand and apply leadership is ultimately going to determine our level of success. So that's why we talk about it here. It's a lifelong pursuit, a daily intentional struggle of trying to become the best leaders that we can become because it is about adding value to everyone we come in contact and everything that we we set forth in. It's about intentional living. And that's what, to me, the pursuit of leadership is all about. I hope you're finding some value in this free resource. And you're going to absolutely love this conversation today with Chuck Blakeman. I have a brand new hero. I absolutely love Chuck Blakeman. You're going to love this conversation. An instant classic here on Dose of Leadership. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about my new mastermind. It's time to mastermind again. I haven't done one in, uh, since this summer, and I'm looking forward to kicking off a new one on January 16th, 2016. Meet 10 weeks every Saturday morning. I'm looking for seven more folks. I've had three sign up already as of this recording. And John Maxwell came out with a brand new book in October called Intentional Living. And I absolutely love this book. This is by far his best book. You know I'm a Maxwell fan. You know I'm a certified coach with Maxwell. One of my favorite leadership authors in this book. He's totally outdone himself. It's in line with everything that you've heard me talk about on Dose of Leadership. Intentional living, living a life that matters, and living a life of significance. It's not about this being successful. It's about leading a life of significance. If you're like me, we all have this desire for our lives and our time on earth to matter. I mean, if you really strip it down, that's all what we want, right? We want to make sure to know what we have done has mattered. And this mastermind program that I'm going to kick off 10 weeks go through 10 chapters of his brand new book, is designed for you if you just don't want to accept. If you want to stop accepting life as it comes to you, you want to lead a life so that it matters. Growing through a plan of intentionality on purpose, adding value to other people's lives. That is what this mastermind is all about. It's a growth plan. It's a roadmap to help you not only have a life-changing journey just for this year and the next year after that, and after that, it's a forever plan. And that's what I'm so excited about It's a journey of self-discovery. It really is. And it's all about the small stuff. It's not about the big stuff. It really is about the small stuff, the daily interactions that make up the actual life we're living. This is a blueprint to how you can, within that daily grind, create a life that matters. It's all about accountability. It's about transformation. It's about purpose. It's about meaning. That's what this mastermind is all about. And if you sign it before December 23rd, as of this recording, December 23rd, 2015, You'll save 74 bucks on the initial price, and I will throw in a free membership, a year-long membership, to the Dose of Leadership membership site, which includes access to my Legacy Leader Blueprint videos, all 20 videos that teach you how to become a legacy leader. Also, 
you will get to have access to my monthly live leadership training sessions, which I will do once a month here starting in January, and access to some inner circle conversations too, at least six throughout the year. So anyway, that's a bonus if you sign up. I need seven more folks. We meet on Saturday mornings. It's a great way to start your week or end your week, however you want to look at it. If you want to know more, go to richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com and click on the Mastermind with Richard menu item and you can learn all about this mastermind. Well, what can I say about Chuck Blakeman? I absolutely love this guy. Like I said, this is one of my favorite conversations I've had. It is right up the alley of everything I believe. It's in my wheelhouse, the dose of leadership philosophy. You're going to love Chuck Blakeman. He has an off-the-grid approach to business. He's bootstrapped eight widely different businesses from the ground up. He is the ultimate entrepreneur. He's made mistakes along the way and some big wins. He's an internationally acclaimed business speaker. He's been quoted and featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, CNN Money, New York Times, other online magazines, and other blogs. He's got a book out there called Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. I love that title. It'll make more, it'll make more sense as, as we get through the conversation. It's a radical book about the participation age, as he calls it, for everyone who has a job, owns a company, or manages people. It kind of destroys the concept and the myth of this kind of Frederick Winslow Taylor industrial age concept that we still seem to be burdened with, and he breaks through it. And you're just going to love this conversation, and you're going to love Chuck Blakeman. So without further ado, here he is, Chuck Blakeman on Dose of Leadership. Well, Chuck, so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be with you. This is such an exciting topic for me. Before we dive into this, though, on your book, Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, give me a little background about yourself, how you got to this point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm left-handed, right-brained. I went to music school. Uh, I finished college. Uh, uh, it took me 19 and a half years to finish college, and <laughs> I only finished it because my mother was the Board of Education president. My brothers and sisters had their masters from fancy Ivy League places, and I didn't even have a bachelor's. Black sheep, so as a present, I got her my... I got got my bachelor's for her, but uh, I'm just I'm just uh, I I don't took me 45 years to figure out I saw the world differently than a lot of people because of my left brain right or right brain left handed creative view of the world and so that's just been my background and and that has fed into my entrepreneurialism I've always done things that I'm that I'd had no idea what I was doing until I got into it and then I learned it and uh, I, I respond to people saying nobody can do that or you can't do that and then I would do it. And so that's been my history. I've built 10 businesses from in, in, on three continents, wildly different businesses from printing to direct mail to landscape architecture, uh, website development, import, export, uh, call centers, all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and it's all been because it sounded like fun and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Very good. I love that kind of uh, let's just dive in and see what happens and let's figure yeah. this out. You know, it's kind of in the frame of kind of Teddy Roosevelt when somebody tells you to do something say yes and then go about to figure out how exactly. to do it yeah I build the parachute on the way down that's right <laughs> I love it well your book you know why employees are always a bad idea this kind of hits uh, to, to my heart something I'm very passionate about too you know I'm I am not a big fan of Frederick Winslow Taylor and scientific management theory and I, I still contend as particularly in large organizations we are still dealing with the after effects of that kind of mentality of the industrial age. Is that kind of what started or was the genesis of why you wrote this book? Yeah, in a nutshell. Uh, I'd always run my businesses differently because I uh, I just didn't come from, I didn't go to business school or any of that stuff. So I just ran them like human beings. We didn't have titles in most of what we did. We didn't have 
departments in many instances. We just got stuff done. People took responsibilities and got stuff done. And over the years, people would look at what we're doing and say, what you're doing is weird, and then I'd try and help them do it, and it worked for them. And But in the context of that, I wrote a blog post in, uh, back in June of 2012 called Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, and I just listed why the whole concept of the way we've developed it through the industrialists was just a bad idea, and here's a replacement for it. Let's call them stakeholders, and let's let's treat them differently, and let's think of them differently. And the thing went viral, and then it went viral three months later, and six months later it went viral again. And January 2nd of 2013, it, I checked my Google Analytics, and, and 2,500 people in Norway had hit it overnight. It's like, all right, so something's going on here. And, and the messaging I was getting back from people was, I have been feeling this for years. I just didn't have words for it. And I didn't have permission to feel this. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the wave is broken. Uh, this stuff's been around for uh, since probably the 30s in some form, way, shape, or another. But it's really only in the last five or ten years where uh, that all the conditions are in place to actually create a world where we can actually run without calling people employees and we can do it a whole different way. I like that you changed the term to stakeholder. It gives us a little more um, accountability, a little more uh, meaning to, you know, we always talk about, hey, we got to get our employees engaged. Yeah. And yet we never give them the tools or at least we never put anything behind that to make them actually feel like they're part of part of the organization. We require that they become engaged, but we don't give them any of the, the yeah. rewards of doing so. Right. And one of the rewards is to be a stakeholder. Stakeholders have a stake in what's going on. They, they are invested in it. And one of the things we talk about when we talk about what we call the participation age, uh, the two hallmarks are participation and sharing. Those right. are the two hallmarks of, of the participation age that really started to evolve right around Web 2.0 in, in the middle 1990s, late 1990s. And, and it's two parts, participation and sharing. People want to participate in the building of a great company and they want to share in the results. And traditionally what we wanted them to do is participate in building a great company and we'll keep the results. Yeah. So profit sharing and ownership, and even if it's not physical ownership, but profit sharing and, and owning your ideas, owning your decision making, ownership is so powerful and that's at the root of being a stakeholder. We say this all the time, Richard, ownership is the most powerful motivator in business and you get ownership by giving people the ability to make decisions without other people watching. That's when I own something. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I was just in a, earlier this afternoon, I was in a, a meeting and watching um, a lot of people in their whole department was in there. And the number one complaint, um, and a lot of talent. I mean, I got to tell you, Chuck, so much talent in this room. I mean, we're talking high educated, highly motivated, innovative, would, you know, ec excellence is part of their, their name. And they just feel stifled because the biggest complaint was that, yeah, the leadership up top talks a big game about wanting us to, you know, lead from the bottom, but they never let us. I mean, and that's right. in every organization that I've that I've been a part of, or worked with, or coached with. And and yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely uh, central to the problem. The people at the quote top of the hierarchy want everyone else 
to be self-managed, but they don't want to play the same game. Yeah. They're going to tell you how to be self-managed. They want you to participate. They want you to have ideas, but they're not going to give you the, the room and the freedom to do that. It's, it's not about empowering me. That's actually a top-down thing. It's about mm-hmm. engaging me. Yeah. Empowerment is something that, you know, when I say I'm going to empower you, it's like I'm the king and I'm going to give you a little bit of my power. That's not really empowering. I believe everybody shows up already empowered. They've got everything they need when they show up. And all I can do is squash it. I can't give them power They've already got it. What I can do is take it away. I can I can remove any opportunity to be who they are. Engagement is just the opposite. People show up in neutral. Yeah. And I've got to give them a reason to be engaged. And that's where participation and sharing gives them the reason to be engaged because now we're not making money. We're making meaning. And they want to do that. I love that. And I love that distinction between empowerment and engagement. It's so true. I'm guilty of using that word empowerment, but that's the yeah, first too. Yeah, and that's the <laughs> first time I've heard it explained that way. You're absolutely right. You already show up with the power. You're yeah. absolutely right. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Now, here's the feed the pushback I get sometimes when I when and I think I scratch the surface. I think you go a lot deeper than I have on this concept, and, and we'll get to some of that in a second. But what do you say? To those people, when I say, well, Rich, look, not everybody is cut out to be a lead, fill in the blank, leader, entrepreneur, stakeholder, whatever the case may be. Some people are just born to be button pushers. They don't want the, they don't want the accountability. They don't want the additional responsibility. What do you say to that? I say they're absolutely right. And those people are the freaks. They are the, the exceptions. And we've made them the rule. Pre-1980, 19, or pre-1850, Somewhere between 80 and 90% of free men throughout history, three men and free men and families throughout history have owned their own business. Yeah. Candlestick makers and yeah. cobblers and yeah. shoemakers and the whole thing. 80 to 90% throughout history. And yet, uh, and, and the, the, the 10 to 20% who did not own their own businesses, they were looked at as freaks. What is wrong with you? You don't own your own business. Today, 85% of people work for somebody else, and they look at the 15% who own their own business and say, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Why don't you work for somebody else? So the, the very history, if you just look at history, you realize that ownership is in our DNA. So that history refutes, refutes that idea that most people are, are made to be pencil pushers and then or button pushers. And then if you look laterally across our present world, I can show you dozens of giant corporations with 65,000 plus stakeholders on down to thousands of smaller businesses running without managers just like this. And somehow they managed to find tens of thousands of people who aren't button pushers. Yeah. And it's because they're fishing in the very same DNA pool that we had pre-1850. When we give people the chance to own stuff, they'll do it. These are both self-fulfilling prophecies. Douglas McGregor wrote a book in 1960 that was ignored uh, because it was so far ahead of its time uh, called The Human Side of Enterprise. And he took the Taylor stuff. Taylor Taylor defined people as stupid and lazy. Uh, The average employee is so stupid they more resemble the ox than any other type, and they're lazy. And he took that and said, that's theory Y. Yep. Or theory X. Theory X is you believe people are stupid and lazy. If you believe people are stupid and lazy, you create a culture around that of, of accountability and managerial uh, accountability that that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And people will show up and say, I don't, I shouldn't have a brain. In fact, I'll get fired if I have a brain here. 
theory why is I believe people are, are generally smart and motivated. And if you believe that, then you'll create that environment and those people will show up. And so I can show you hundreds, thousands of companies of every size in every industry that are doing things this way, giving people their brains back, and it's working. Uh, so we know that that's not true, both historically and laterally across the U.S. or the world today. If, if, if somebody can find 10,000 people who all have brains, I can find 50. Yeah, amen to that. And I think, too, and I'm just listening to this and just thinking, what this really is a byproduct of the Industrial Age Revolution. In, in the- it is. Frederick Winslow yeah. Taylor's and all that. And you're absolutely right. And, and it has flipped. And I was even just thinking as you're talking about even history. I mean, hell, as Kate, and we're, we were born that way. We had to be entrepreneurs if we we're going to survive, yeah. right? Yeah. And so everybody yeah. was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so we've, we've flipped the whole thing and we've made abnormal normal uh, and, 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 and what used to be normal freakish. But ownership is in our DNA. And that doesn't mean we all have to own the business, but we all have to have the ability to make decisions, be adults. At our very core, human beings are creative. That's why we ask questions. Who, what, when, where, and how, and especially why. The most human of questions. If you look at the industrial age, what was the one question you were not allowed to ask for 175 years? Why? Yeah, why? The most human of questions you were, you were stuffed on. You were considered a rebel, an outcast, a, you know, a misfit if you asked questions. So they, they stripped the humanity out of it and stripped the ownership out of it. And what we're doing here is we're not doing anything new. We're just going back where we came from 175 years ago. The, the industrial age had a, a tremendous uh, – we, we got a lot of great toys out of the industrial age. But the impact on humanity was really bad. And uh, that's best represented by the, the, the demographic – uh, the cohort group that went to work at the height of the industrial age, 1945 to 1965. That's the peak of the whole thing, the machine, the factory system. And the cohort group that was born in the 20s that went to work in the 40s during the peak of the uh, industrial age, they're called, the, the, the ones before them are the giant, the silent or the, uh, the uh, greatest generation. I'm the baby boomers. The one in the middle are called the silent generation. Yeah. Shut up, sit down, don't make waves, live invisibly, and go out quietly. That is the human product of the industrial age. Not a real good thing. Man, I love. I, yeah, it's so true. You know, I would even present to you too. And I'm coming from the Marine Corps, and I talk about why the Marine Corps was so successful at what they do, why they're so good at what they do, and. An outsider looking in would say, well, look, it's all about structure and discipline and this hierarchy. And yeah, and you've got, but when it works, when it is in, when they're doing what they're called to do and work in a very chaotic environment, what you're talking about here is this participation organization. It is one that is fraught with creativity, flexibility. In fact, it, in fact, it, it thrives on a chaotic environment. And the only way you can thrive in a chaotic environment is if you spread the leadership responsibility or the stakeholder to everybody in the organization to think and act like a leader. And you encourage people to ask for forgiveness and not permission. And I think that's something that people don't understand. I contend that's how organizations can start breaking free of this mediocrity today and closing this gap of this strategic planning and strategic execution. And in my, what you're talking about here, it becomes a distinction without a difference. I mean, we're talking about, look, we're all in this together. We may have some structure on who's ultimately accountable, the financials. You know, I, I'm the owner of the business. But what you're talking about here, I, I think on the surface, someone would think, oh, what you're talking about is socialism. But that is not what yeah. we're talking about here. 
Yeah. No, it's just the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually true capitalism. Yeah. See, a, a capitalist would say, I want to participate in building a great company and I want to share in the results. And then they look at everybody else and say, well, you just participate. I'm not going to let you actually share. Right. I'm going to take all the share. Why would we expect that they would want to participate? Why would we ask them? Why would they want to own if they don't get the the the, the, the both the risk and the reward of ownership? So that's that's what stakeholders do. They they take the risk and the reward, just like the owners of the business in smaller doses. But they do that. And and until you give people uh, cut people in on the reward side. Uh, it's it's phony, and it's one of the reasons self-management hasn't worked in the past. I want you to be self-managed, but I'm not going to let you in on uh, on the back-end uh, re- result of you doing really good work. Do you have any um, data examples? I, I, my instinct is telling me that if you're running an organization like this, you could almost you know have more input with a tremendous amount less employees. Is, is that true? Is there any data behind that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's uh, tons of data. All the data is in the direction of self management. It's not in the direction of of uh, top down hierarchy, right. command and control. Uh, and there's there's anecdotal data that is extremely powerful. If you look at the the uh, the companies that claim self management, where uh, and and we should probably define that we haven't. But from my perspective, what I'm talking about, there's lots of ways to do this. But I would say that self-management is happens in an environment where there are no managers. Nobody can fire anybody. At uh, Semco, there is no no one human being who fires anybody. Everybody lives on teams, and the teams take over the management functions rather than having an individual. And the teams decide their productivity. They decide who gets to be hired and fired, who gets to stay on the island, who doesn't. They even decide their own salaries. They just said they do everything that a manager used to do, but they do it together many times in blind votes to take the politics out of it. But it's much cleaner that way. And Semco is a great example. Uh, in 1981, Ricardo Semler took it over. It was a 30-year-old washing machine uh, meat slicer factory that was now only $4 million after 30 years. Not a real uh, stellar growth uh, pattern for 30 years. He took that from four million to uh, one to two billion. It's privately held, but it's one to two billion in revenue and like five or seven, five to seven billion in assets in thirty more years. And he did it because he he got rid of all the managers, and he set up a place where everybody had a brain, and uh, everybody were, lived lived on teams. And in the worst ten year recession in Brazil's history, their revenues went up six hundred percent. Their productivity went up. 700%, their profitability went up 500%. And the most stunning of this data is for the last 30 years, their employee turnover is 1% or less every year. Wow. 3,000 people, they lose less than 30 people a year. Uh, so they, he, he took 12 layers of management and reduced it to three simple layers of leadership. And, and there's, I mean, there's the hugest bit or the biggest part of your profitability issue right there. You take all those people out who aren't productive, and your profitability is going to go through the roof. Yeah. But uh, the, you know, now he's got uh, uh, all those people who are cross-trained on 100% of what they do because they've been around forever. And as a result, they're in all sorts of uh, industries that he couldn't have possibly imagined because he gave everybody their brains to do that. I can give you scores of examples just like that uh, across the spectrum of any industry you want to talk about. 
at at some point, well, that, that sounds amazing. But at some point, you, you that has to be relying upon hiring the right person. Who is the ideal candidate to hire for this type of organization? Yeah, if you if you believe in this participation age stuff, that people actually are smart and motivated, it changes everything you do in the way of leading people, including how you hire them. In the industrial age, we hire first for uh, uh, experience, second for skills, and nothing else. Right. In a, in a uh, participation age environment, the first thing you hire for is culture. What do you believe about work? Do you believe work is to make meaning or to make money? I need to find that out before I hire you because if you're here to make money, uh, that's, a part, that's an industrial age thing. We, we, we don't want you. We want you to make meaning and money will be the result of that right. and a number of other beliefs like that. And so how you hire, what you're doing basically is you're sifting for people who are true stakeholders or employees, stakeholders trapped in employee bodies who want to be stakeholders and all you have to do is free them up. And so there's, we have an 11-step hiring process that we put people through that turns it all in its head. We hire for culture, then we look at uh, talent, then we look at demonstrated skills, and we almost never even look at the resumes or for experience oh, or, or, or stated skills. Just the opposite of what you would do in an industrial age company. So it is, it is critical that you hire the right people and that you fire quickly. That's yeah. the other piece of this is that the teams will not put up with people who won't participate. Uh, you, can, you can smoke a manager for years, but the team's peers know who's operating and who's not and who's functioning and who's not, and they'll, they'll let you go very quickly. That's why the turnover is almost nothing at Semco because everybody knows they have to perform. I absolutely love this. And, you're, and, what, what, and this goes back to what I – always contend that the utopia is you're hiring a bunch of leaders. And you're right. I, I've worked with a lot of managers and my peers, and they're like, well, you know, you got to hire the smart, and you just can't expect it. I'm like, no, I want I want people that are smarter than me. I'm going to hire yeah. the people. And then I get the devil's advocate saying, well, that's just not possible. Those people don't exist. And I just refuse to believe that. I just absolutely yeah, that's the self, that. Richard, that's the self-fulfilling prophecy of I believe people are stupid and lazy, and I've made that come true over and over again. And I've essentially squashed smart and motivated people, and I've turned them into stupid and lazy ones and said, see, I told you so. They're all stupid and lazy. Uh, you, you mentioned the Marines. I was in the Army. <clears throat> but uh, David Marquette was, yep. uh, was a Navy captain been on the who show, took yep. the mm-hmm. worst – I don't know if, you, if, if you're familiar with him. He yeah, he's been on the show. Turn yeah. the ship around. Yeah, he's been on the show. Yeah, so turn the ship around. He took the worst sub in the Navy and turned it into the best sub of the Navy. And he wasn't able to, uh, to tr- turn out anybody. He had to do it with the same 135 people he inherited. Yep. And he talks about uh, making sure that he hires all leaders. And so you don't even necessarily have to hire all leaders. You have to require that everyone lead. And if, you, if they don't want to lead, then you find somebody else. Yep. Amen. I love that. So good. So what do we do then um, if we're in an organization? What if we find ourselves in this large bureaucratic organization and we want to change the culture? Is all hope lost or what can we? What steps can we start to, to take to start turning this yeah. Titanic around? Yeah, it really depends on how, how large and confused the organization is. If it's incredibly large and incredibly few, confused, then you can actually develop a little pocket of sanity Right where you are, if you, you know, if you have some authority to, to do so, if you're like a department manager or something, then you can actually develop a little world, a little tiny world with the 15 of you to actually have a good time and, and work together and be productive and, and do that kind of stuff. I did that in a company with 300 plus people and the two, I was a, a captive employee twice in my life. And for five years, I was a department manager with 15 people. 
And we it was in a company where the turnover was 65% a year. Holy cow. And the, the average employee satisfaction on a scale of five was around 1.9 to 2.1. Our department had 3.8, uh, which isn't all that great, but in a company that bad, <laughs> that was pretty good. And we didn't lose, we just didn't lose people. And we built a great little thing. But the thing, the thing was so broken and so confused that people left me alone. Uh, sometimes you get in environments like that. I had an experience like this in another company where we did that, and the company was really mad at me and basically claimed that I was sub, uh, that I was throwing the company under the bus. That's why everybody in my department was happy because I just blamed the company for everything. But uh, you know, it, it's it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it depends on how much authority you have, uh, because all of this stuff comes from uh, great leadership or poor leadership. And if you have poor leadership, then you probably need to start looking around. Yeah. The good news is that this is a growing, a fast-growing number of companies in every industry who are adopting the idea that they need to give people their brains back. So you can find somewhere else where you can have a brain. I love this. I love in your book, too, where you say the art of leadership is to know how few times the leader should actually make the decision. That is so yeah. spot on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the significant differences between management and leadership. I've been having ongoing discussions with Tom Peters on uh, Twitter about all of this stuff. And, uh, and I think one of the things a lot of people, and I don't know if Tom does this, but I get the feeling you know, it's hard to find out from 140 characters, but I know a lot of people conflate management and leadership, and they, they sort of just use those terms interchangeably. Yeah, they're not. To me, leadership has been around for thousands of years. And management, the way we do it today, grew up in and was formed, it formed and grew up in the factory system and is radically different than leadership. And the, the biggest difference between the two is that one thing you just mentioned. The biggest job of a manager is to constantly and regularly solve and decide, make decisions. That's their biggest, that's how they add their value. They don't, they're not productive. They just make decisions for everybody else who is productive. Leaders are just the opposite. The art of leadership is to know how few decisions the leader needs to make. So, so a, a manager will, will be glad when people come to them with their three good ideas and then he gets to pick one and look smart. Right. The leader will say, I'm going to train you on how to make these decisions and then I'm going to get the blankety blank out of the way. Yep. Yep. Oh, my God. You're speaking my language. We've talked – we have hit on this a lot on the show, but this is absolutely – give me goosebumps when I hear that because you're absolutely right. When you – make the, or like I said, it's the decentralized decision-making culture where you ask for forgiveness, not permission. That is the only way you can take it to the next level. The rest of it, you're just going to be bathing in mediocrity. You're always going to be stagnant. You'll never get very far. No, it is, it is fundamental to the whole thing. And that's one of the, 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 the uh, objections I get on a regular basis is that I'm making this, this management tool into some big deal that everybody has to do. No, it's not a management tool. It is a core, fundamental human condition, a need to make decisions. Again, we are at our core creative. And that's not about painting or playing music. Creativity at its core is making decisions. That's what a creative yep. person does when they do business or, or art or anything else. It's about making decisions. And so that's a core, fundamental human need. And when I stifle that, I turn people into extensions of machines. When I let it go, they contribute, they participate, and they're in a position to share in the results. It's radical uh, uh, normality. 
Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Radical normality, because the what we're talking about here, like you've pointed out in the beginning of the show, has existed since the dawn of man. This isn't something yeah. that has just come about or the flavor of the month. No, these are fundamentals no. that it just exist, and they're there for our taking. Yeah, I think we're just going back. In my opinion, we're going back to where we came from before the industrial age. Think about it. In in 1839 or 1849, I'm sitting there and I'm making shoes. And it took me 10 years to figure out how to make shoes. I was an apprentice, and there's so much involved in how to tan the leather and, and the whole thing. And it's really, really involved stuff. And I learned how to make shoes, and I'm cranking out making shoes. And some guy comes to me from a factory and says, I'd like you to come over to my factory, and I'd like you to take a job eight hours a day putting the uh, one, one nail in the, the upper left-hand corner of the boot and then give it to the next guy, and he'll put the next nail in. I mean, we're just going back where we came from. No one, no, no adults, by the way, would take that deal up front. And the factories were run uh, actually solely by children for 60 to 70 years because they couldn't find adults who would want to be turned into machines like that. The average age of, in, until the uh, mid, almost the mid-1800s, the average age of the worker, uh, I think 50% were under the age of nine, and 86% were under the age of 14, and fully 100% were under the age of 16. Because no, no human being with a brain wanted to do that stuff. Right. Oh, this is good stuff. What do you say? I'm going back. I was thinking about where the teams is all kind of self-manage. Plain devil's advocate again. What do you do? The natural tendency. I've got a room full of type A's or the, the right yeah. type of people in this, and I'm herding cats, which I would much rather prefer than trying to kick people in the butt and take them go. I'd much rather herd the cats. What do you do when the ego's involved and one person naturally has a natural leadership ability over the others and wants to kind of run the whole team? Or Is that okay? Or what do, what do we try to do in that situation? Well, to me, it's a democracy, not a consensus. Yeah. And so if we've got 10 people on the team, Every six months, we vote on, uh, in a blind vote, I vote on myself, how valuable is Chuck to this team? How valuable is he as a team contributor? How valuable is he as an individual producer? I might value myself on three or four different things, and then I have the same things on a scale of one to ten, I value the other people. And uh, uh, out of that vote, one of the things we would be voting on is who should lead the team for the next six months. Hmm. And what generally happens in these environments is, yes, you do have people who are naturally gifted leaders. You also have people who are naturally uh, command and control power hungry, who I would call managers. And those people don't end up voted on the, to, to lead. They end up staying in production or whatever then because nobody wants to be commanded and controlled. They want to find a leader. If you look at the ancient uh, roots of the word leader in the Latin and others in Greek, it basically means servant. Yes. And so yes. if you have someone who's leading as a servant, I'm going to vote you uh, into that position again next yep. six months because yep. you really helped me be successful. You championed my success. So the egos get squashed a lot easier in this environment than they do in the politically charged environment of I sat in the chair, long, chair longer than the next guy. The manager finally quit. I deserve the position. Right. Devil's advocate again, you're claiming in your book you know, that we shouldn't have written policies or HR department. That's going to make all the lawyers about have a conniption. What, what do you say to that? Well, I've talked to lawyers about this stuff. And the lawyers, the human resources lawyers basically say, you know, whatever rules you lay down, you need to play by them. So uh, uh, 
uh, Valve and Semco and a couple others, they, they have 15 to 20 page cartoon books that they give people <laughs> when they come to work for them. They basically lay out the principles and the values of the company using cartoons and entertaining stuff that will actually stick with them. Here's how we do work. And I remember one of them, it says, the, the question is, how should I dress at work? And the answer is, see value number one. If you can't figure it out based on that value, you probably shouldn't work here. Right. And, you know, the, the value was trust in adult behavior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so if you decide that you, that you have to have all these policies, then you, better, you, you have to keep them all. But if you keep it in principles and values, then and, you, and everybody understands coming in that they're going to be held to principles and values and that in on, ongoing the teams are going to work that out together, what that means, then you're on good legal ground. I love that. Common sense. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, it's, it's principles versus uh, policies and procedures. It, it, procedures are actually a good thing, but policies are where we get ourselves yeah. uh, 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 upside down. And that's where we, we manage people to what we call the lowest common denominator. All management is LCD, lowest yep. common. What's the stupidest and laziest thing somebody could do here? And how do I make sure they perform just above that? So somebody, mis and this is a real thing, I just got this from a, a speaking engagement I had like a couple of weeks ago, somebody ran up, to up afterwards and said, yeah, in my company, somebody abused their cell phone privileges, whatever that means, and the next day, HR put out a policy that said everyone now has to leave their cell phones in their cars. So one person did something either stupid or lazy, and we all pay for it. That's what policies do. They manage you to the bottom. Yeah. Leadership, leadership leads you to the top. What's the smartest and most motivated thing we could expect from somebody in this position? And we're going to expect it from everybody. And guess what? People raise themselves to our highest expectations of them. Yep. Love it. I'm curious who your heroes are. Whose shoulders are you standing on to be where you're at? Well, there's there's some people who, who go way back into the 30s on this stuff. Um, one of my favorites is, Mar is, is Douglas McGregor, again, 1960, his book, Human Side of Enterprise. Uh, Marvin Weisbord, uh, he wrote a book in the 80s uh, uh, on this kind of stuff. Ricardo Semler, uh, Bill Gore. Bill Gore started his company, uh, the company that makes Gore-Tex and other materials, in the late 50s based on these principles. And for 60-plus years, they haven't had internal managers who manage each other. They live, live on teams. And there's 10,000 people in $3 billion company. And he wrote a little paper in the 70s called The Lattice Organization that describes in some, the simplicity of, uh, of that kind of environment. So he's a hero. Ricardo Semler's uh, business in, in – that I described earlier, Semco, uh, in the 90s. They've been doing that for 30-plus years. And then a lot of other people who have jumped on board in the last 20, 30 years. So this is not new. I didn't come up with it. But I think the conditions are right for, uh, for this actually taking over as a, as a standard way of, of uh, structuring a company. I think in the next 5 to 20 years, this is going to be a big duh. We're just going to get we're, – we're finally going to get away from the factory system. Yeah. But people are going to be slow adapters because it's working for the guys at the top. And it scares uh, – you know, the uncertainty or the apparent uncertainty of it scares the managers in the middle when it really shouldn't. They should all want to become leaders. I love this. Chuck, you are my hero. You're my – I just I love what you're doing. I've – you know, I skimmed the book prior to reading this and I'm going to – 
dive in this and I think this is going to be a go-to for me. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing. I love this. Um, thank you so much for the work you're doing. And uh, I, you, you're always got to welcome home here because I believe this wholeheartedly, just exactly what you're doing. So you always got a champion uh, to well, thank you. I, I think this is intuitive stuff, which is why you embrace it. This is just basic human, duh, right? Yeah, I mean, right. It's just, it, it makes sense because at, at our very core, this stuff uh, aligns with who we are as human beings. How can people get in touch with you, find out more about you? And uh, the book is Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. You can find it at, at everywhere, I'm sure. But how can people get in touch yeah. with you? Yeah, chuckblakeman.com. We try and keep it simple. So chuckblakeman.com. I'm also on Twitter as Chuck Blakeman. That's my web, my my Facebook account is Chuck Blakeman. So uh, chuckblakeman.com is, is a great place to find us if you want speaking engagements or workshops or working with companies. We do a lot of that kind of stuff. I'll have links to all this on the post. Chuck, what an honor to meet you. I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Richard. It was a lot of fun. And what I tell you, isn't Chuck great? I love this guy. You can find out more at chuckblakeman.com. You can go to his other website, his business, The Crank Set Group. I have links to this on all of um, the posts here at Dose of Leadership. And again, the book is Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. Get this book. It is a go-to, will be a go-to for you in your leadership journey. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, The Mastermind, January 16th. If you want no inform, want more information, go to doseofleadership.com or richardryerson.com and click on Mastermind with Richard. Thanks for tuning in to the show, and we'll see you next time. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. <music>